Los Angeles Unified School District, the nation's second largest, has been at the epicenter of big city school reform over the past decade. The district's seen massive charter growth and school governance changes, efforts to overhaul teacher evaluation, and numerous initiatives to promote equity for the underserved, all the while facing growing budget deficits that have left it on the brink of insolvency. In January 2019, tensions created by those reform efforts culminated in the district's first teacher strike in three decades. The strike ended after just six days, but big questions remain. Why has it been so hard to implement and sustain education reform in Los Angeles? And what will it take to put the district and its students on a path to success? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Julie Marsh, professor of education policy at the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education. Along with Susan Bush Masenas, Julie is co-author of Building on Shaky Ground, Reforming a Divided School System in Los Angeles, an article that will appear in the spring 2020 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Julie, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. So you've had a front row seat for the action in Los Angeles over the past 10 years, and that local knowledge really comes through in the article. It's great to have a chance to speak with you about it today. One of the key themes in the article is the sheer scale of LA Unified. You refer to it as a behemoth. I wonder if you could start out by giving a sense of the district scale and why it matters. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, it's the second largest school district in the country. But if you think about Los Angeles, it's a rambling geography of more than 720 square miles. It includes 26 cities. The district itself is broken up into various board districts as well as regional offices. It has more than a thousand schools. Um, the, the enrollment is almost 600,000 students. Um, with an additional 100,000 or so in, in uh, charter schools. The students themselves are very diverse. More than three-fourths uh, qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, they are about 75% are Latinx, 8% African-American, 10% white, uh, about a quarter are English learners, 93 different languages spoken. So there's a, a size and diversity element to the context that is very important. This is a very different context than other kinds of districts. So it's big geographically. It's big in terms of the number of students who are enrolled. But at least with that latter metric, it's also been shrinking a bit, as I understand it. Why is it the case that student enrollment has been declining in the district schools? My understanding is that it's a result of a number of things. One is a declining birth rate in the county and in the area. There's also been uh, increases in charter school enrollment. Um, but that's not the only thing, too. There's also a very high cost of living and lack of affordable housing that is probably contributing to um, people moving out. And so that's, I guess, a few of the elements uh, contributing to the decline we've seen. And that enrollment decline has major implications for the district's finances, which we'll come back to later on in the conversation. But let's first talk a bit about the substance of the district's recent reform efforts. In your article, you and Susan Bush Masenis decided to focus in on three areas in particular, efforts to implement a portfolio management model, new teacher evaluations, and a set of initiatives to promote equity. Why those three? <laughs> 
Well, I think for a number of reasons. I think that these are efforts that we've observed nationally. I think we've seen for the past decade these kinds of reforms occurring, right? So when we think about portfolio management, right, that engages in the expansion of charter schools and governance kinds of reforms. I would include in there also processes to turn around low-performing schools, which we've seen around the country, right? The second around evaluation, I think we were thinking about human capital reforms and the movement around creating multiple measure teacher evaluation systems we've seen all over the country. And then the efforts to promote equity and improve equity has obviously been a big focus around the country, particularly in terms of resource allocation, but also if, you know, we think about things like discipline reform and trying to decrease disproportionate suspensions, for example. So these were three very common reforms we've seen around the country, but were particularly illustrative for us in understanding the challenges and the complexity of reform in Los Angeles. So let's talk a bit about each of them and what we learned from looking at how they played out in Los Angeles. Start with the portfolio management model. Tell us a bit about exactly what that is and the form that it took in Los Angeles. Yeah, so again, this is something we've seen around the country. It's not unique to Los Angeles. In some ways, Los Angeles doesn't even subscribe to it explicitly. Uh, There are places that actually use that language a lot more explicitly. Um, For example, Denver would be one case. But the notion of the portfolio is really that school districts are changing um, their roles in some sense. So rather than school district leaders dictating the nature of the services and the educational programs in their schools. They create more autonomy for schools and play a sort of higher level role in guiding in terms of accountability and oversight, which schools, uh, where they go and sort of planning where they're located, but also then how well they're meeting their accountability targets. And if not, then thinking about ways to uh, close or replace them. The other thing that changes here is the notion of a bit more choice for parents. So portfolio models change the nature of the district relationship with that families no longer have to attend a school, perhaps just based on their neighborhood attendance boundaries. They can now select from other kinds of of school choices. So Los Angeles attempted to do this, um, still has elements of it. But I think what we highlight in our article is that under John Daisy, uh, starting in about 2009, there was a real explicit effort to expand the portfolio. And the district engaged in what they called the public school choice initiative that identified some of the lowest performing schools in the district, as well as some of these new campuses that had been built using bond um, money to allow different kinds of school operators to take over and operate these schools. And so teams who were put together, there was an RFP, they had to put together a plan, and they had to um, explain how they were going to improve or create better outcomes for kids in these schools. So it was a complicated process, and it, it sort of rolled out over time, um, and it could involve the takeover of a charter management organization or just a, a group of uh, teachers and administrators who wanted to take over the school. And so some saw this as a effort to bring charters within the district uh, to give away public schools to the charter sector. Is that really the right way to think about what the initiative was meant to do, uh, or at least how it played out in practice? I think district leaders would have argued that this was an effort in earnest to bring about change in some of these schools that were floundering. And I think the idea was, you know, you could have a group of teachers who have an innovative idea of how they wanted to create a smaller school with a theme inside of it. And 
right? So I think um, the idea was to infuse innovation and competition and in some sense to bring about improvement in some of these chronically low-performing campuses. Now, I think the the union's perspective and others was that um, it could be an avenue for expanding the role of charters and private interests in ways that were sort of working against the system. And so I think what you're alluding to is that over time, the narrative uh, became a particular among the United Teachers of Los Angeles. The teachers union was that this was a public school giveaway. But ultimately, as I understand it, the charters who competed for these turnaround roles, ultimately their role was quite limited. Is that correct? In the early years, they had more freedom, although there was some constraint. So, for example, they couldn't just open up a lottery. They had to give preference to students in the local neighborhood, and there were some, some constraints on, on their functioning. But in the early years of this, they could hire um, teachers that were not under the collective bargaining agreement. And then what we explained in the article was that over time, opposition from various groups uh, pushback on the reform and adjustments were made to the policy that in the later years of this, you could only operate one of these public school choice schools if the employees were operating with un- under the collective bargaining agreement. So essentially in the later years, charter schools no longer competed to take over these schools. Um, they, they were really more involved in the early years. So let's turn to teacher evaluation. As you noted, Los Angeles was hardly alone in pursuing evaluation reform in the past decade, but it was an early and high profile mover on the issue. What did they do and why and what do we learn from it? So there's a long history here. A report comes out basically saying that as it was in other places around the country, right, that the evaluation system was really ineffective, right? Everyone was being rated uh, as sort of um, effective on the the old system. Um, It lacked teeth. Um, you know, people were just sort of doing it for in compliance ways, right, without a kind of meaning to try and help bring about improvement. So the district put together a task force. They piloted a whole system um, that changed names over time, but it was supposed to be involving multiple measures of teacher effectiveness in the sense of observations and stakeholder feedback and some sort of assessment of um, their performance. There was a value-added measure. And and so they initiated it. There was a pilot. There was some research done. And there were definitely challenges, particularly around the time it was taking and the technology that was involved. Um, But the politics got involved over time when uh, there were efforts to, for example, part of what I had been involved in was understanding they had received federal funding from the TIF initiative, Teacher Incentive Fund from the federal government, and the district was going to implement um, a four-level rating system that categorized teachers, right, as um, the highly effective, effective, and I'm forgetting, of course, the other two, right, but there were four ratings, and the union was opposed to that. They also weren't interested in the value added measure. And in large part, I think there was concerns that this was paving the way for merit pay. Um, They were also demanded, the union was upset about the demands that this was putting, which were real demands. I mean, the time it was taking to uh, implement an evaluation system along a long set of standards of teaching effectiveness was was quite burdensome for, for a lot of people. So over time, there were lots of battles. I can't go into all the details. Um, there were legal battles. It was litigated. 
um, it was finally settled that they would use a three-level rating system. And uh, this is still in effect today, but a lot of the elements of the plan, for example, from that federal grant never were implemented. So, for example, there were going to be, uh, there was a career ladder that involved mentor and master teachers and stipends for high-need schools, and that um, never came to fruition um, given the politics and how divisive this became over time. What was most interesting to me about the discussion of this issue in your article is that it really highlighted the fact that the district was under pressure from multiple outside sources to reform teacher evaluation. You mentioned the federal government and the obligations that LA Unified took on as a recipient of a teacher incentive fund grant. There was also the litigation you mentioned. Uh, California had had a law on the books since the early 1970s requiring districts to have evaluations based on student progress that had been being ignored yet emerged as a source of pressure on the district. And then you even had the media involved with the LA Times making the decision to secure and publish value-added estimates for individual teachers working in LA Unified. So a lot of pressure from multiple directions on the district, yet still very difficult internal political dynamics that made it hard for the district's leaders to move this issue forward. Yes, and that's part of what we're trying to illustrate in the piece throughout all of these examples was the fact that there are a lot of competing political actors in Los Angeles, and in large part, those are forces that make it very difficult to create change. And so we have, you know, philanthropies, uh, EdVoice, a nonprofit funded by Eli Brode and others, right, played a role in in some of this litigation. Um, We have the media, we have the courts playing a role, we have elected officials and various parties and interests that are funding those board members. And so, yes, that is part of what we are trying to highlight here is the different players and the different interests that often come into conflict. And the third area you discuss is a set of initiatives you present under the heading of equity. What's an example? So one good example is um, a court case called Reed versus State, uh, the state of California. Uh, and so this was uh, led by the ACLU. It was a collection class action lawsuit against California and Los Angeles unified, alleging that the layoffs were disproportionately affecting several low performing, uh, or I should say middle schools that served low income students of color. And the court tried to say, issued an injunction. There was a settlement. I mean, this went on for years. Um, And ultimately it started out including three schools. It expanded to 45 schools that were then protected Um, and given additional resources, and they were also um, allowed to sort of um, challenge the last-in, first-out seniority rules uh, dictated by state law. And so uh, it was then reformed again over the next couple years. There was a subsequent agreement that uh, then again engaged another set of more schools and different ways that got additional support to maintain um, kind of the, the, to decrease the turnover, to allow them to hire uh, additional staff, additional professional development was provided through these resources, mentor teachers, things like that. 
Um, and so that would be one good example of the ways in which we see resources and the courts uh, coming in to try and advance equity in various ways in the, in the district. One of the interesting things about that episode, at least to me, is that it created a bit of tension between groups like the uh, ACLU, you mentioned as being part of the lawsuit, other civil rights organizations who are concerned about these schools serving traditionally disadvantaged students, and the union, while those groups see eye to eye, I would suspect, on the push for more resources for education in the city, there's some disagreement about some aspects of collective bargaining and the implications for uh, schools that serve traditionally disadvantaged students. Yes, and I've written elsewhere about what I call the ecology of games of reform in Los Angeles, and it applies elsewhere. But there are constantly these reform games, whether it's charter expansion or union reform or accountability or community engagement, electoral political games that are going on. And players play in multiple games at different times, and it sometimes they are uh, adversaries and sometimes they are on the same side. And this is a good example of, of what you're just saying is a good example of the ways in which the various coalitions shift over time. Now, it's easy to look at the complicated narratives that you trace out in the article that we've been talking a bit about here, the conflict that they involve. It's easy to look at those and become discouraged. So I think it's actually important to step back and acknowledge that at least if we look at performance on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, there's been some progress in LA towards improving student achievement. From 2002 until 2017, LA was one of the fastest improving districts that participates in the trial urban district assessment. It narrowed gaps with the state as a whole with large cities nationally. It dropped back a bit in 2019, but should we be somewhat optimistic about what's been accomplished as a result of all this activity? I think there are signs, and I think through the article we give you some examples of ways in which some of these reforms actually did lead to some improvements, not just on the measures of the test. And I think the district would show you with their recent testing that there have been some improvements and progress made. So I think that's accurate. I think there are other signs in terms of the um, turnover of teachers or I know that my colleague Catherine Strunk had done some research around looking at the changes um, in the teacher workforce as a result of the evaluation reform that went on, and there have been some improvements um, in terms of that. So there have been signs, and it's not all you know, gloom and doom. I think there are some signs of also collaborative work going on, and I think the some wins on the on the side of collaboration among community organizations that were poking pushing for the equity index and ways in which resources are being allocated in more comprehensive ways, for example. So there's definitely some signs of hope and potential. Now, all three of these episodes that we've discussed created tensions between the union and the district. And as I said at the top of the interview, these tensions culminated in a major strike in early 2019. What were the key issues in that conflict and how were they resolved? So there were a number of sort of bread and butter issues around teacher pay and staff on campus, for example, nursing staff wanting additional counselors and librarians um, and class sizes. And I think the reason why 
it fits so nicely with the examples that we've been showing in this article is that the issues around portfolio management, human capital, and equity were all sort of wrapped up into the the debates and the issues in, in, in the contest over the strike. So the issue around charter expansion became quite clear as one of the central issues that the union was concerned about. Uh, they were pushing for a moratorium, which ultimately is something that had to be decided by the state. But as a result of it, the board agreed to calling on the legislature to create a moratorium. Um, they ultimately got a 6% raise. There was uh, included in here um, promises around adding staff to each of the campuses and smaller class sizes. And as I said, this board resolution called on the governor and the state to enact a cap on charter schools. And I can talk about where that led if you want. But ultimately, this became more than just teacher salaries. I think the charter schools um, were definitely at the center of this. The head of the teachers union even called out the portfolio management model as one of the key elements uh, that the strike was was about and saw it as a sort of threat to the traditional district um, overall. And of course, a key challenge in resolving the strike was that the district doesn't have much money to work with. You mentioned it forecasting a $500 million deficit in 2020-2021, which is some 6% of its budget. So maybe that helps explain why some other policy issues got wrapped up in the strike as well. And of course, charters were central to that. You just discussed how the school board agreed to vote on a resolution calling on the state to cap charter school growth. Under new governor Gavin Newsom, as I understand it, there have been some changes to the state's charter law, the most important of which was to allow school districts to deny charter applications based on their financial implications for the district. Does that portend the end of charter expansion in the state, at least in cash-strapped districts like Los Angeles? I don't know if it's the end. I think it's going to be a difficult road. I think we don't know yet. The law goes into effect in July. I think the interpretation of what it means for a school board to be able to deny based on harm to finances is open to interpretation and I would imagine litigation in the long run here. Um, they also limited the appeal process to the state. So now all of a sudden counties are now um, taking on a bit more uh, importance in the appeal process. So I think we're going to see some shifts there. Um, but I think uh, it, it's a, it will be a tough road ahead. And it also puts a lot of pressure on now school board and counties for, um, in terms of who gets into these positions of leadership. And if charter growth is likely to slow Looking forward, where do you see the impetus for reform, for progress in Los Angeles coming from? And ultimately, what will it take for it to succeed? I think a popular initiative right now are the community schools. Um, there's more funding being put into them. The county is playing a role now in supporting some of these schools. It's at a small scale right now, but I think there is momentum behind trying to bring in resources outside of the district to support students in a more comprehensive way. So I find some opportunity there if we think about bringing in other actors and other resources. I think the charter school community is still quite vibrant. They're not going away. Um, I think the big 
push for reform has to, in some sense, come from the state level. I think one of the interesting things about the growth of charter schools and then the backlash is that now there was much more of a threat in the growth of charter schools when you have declining enrollment and fiscal issues. In other cities, for example, in Denver, when they had the expansion of their portfolio, they were increasing student enrollment and charter schools posed less of a threat. So I think over time, the context really matters in terms of the population, in terms of funding that could come from the state. And there are lots of efforts on the on the state level to, to increase funding for schools, base funding to address issues around the pension. There's a lot of issues at the state level right now that, as you were sort of alluding to, got wrapped up into the strike and to all of the sort of backlash against charter schools. My guest today has been Julie Marsh, professor of education policy at the University of Southern California and co-author of Building on Shaky Ground, available now at educationnext.org. Julie, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.